0: listening to changing reality changing reality where we bend reality all across the world only on wqhs radio so hi everyone and welcome to another episode of changing reality welcome one welcome all we're so excited to have you with us here on another episode if this is your first time watching the show where have you been didn't you know that this is the place to be and if you are a returning guest uh, please we enjoy all of you tuning in your comments your questions everything is much appreciated so thank you for supporting the show so for all of you first-time viewers changing reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing their own reality and through this show we have the opportunity to hang out with an array of phenomenal people from social change makers entrepreneurs business owners to even artists musicians and inspiring individuals from all across the world and many of whom have spent some time here on the Penn campus as well And by hearing these brilliant stories on how they managed to not only change their lives, but reciprocally change the lives of those around them, hopefully we'll be able to pick up some nuggets of wisdom that we can use in our own journeys and shorten the learning curve that we are taking towards our own goals and dreams. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are so many people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm sure those stories, and you'd agree with me on this, that stories that they have have the power to influence the way that we look at ourselves and the world around us. And I believe that these stories are essentially the keys and the essence to unlocking the different tips and tricks, the different strengths and weaknesses, the different ideas that we have within us so that we too can start figuring out how we can change our reality. And to show you how much I believe in the power of stories and how much it's helped me personally in my life. I actually founded and run a youth movement called Ascendants based on the power of stories. We started off in Malaysia, which is where I'm from. But today, we work with not just our own Malaysian Ministry of Education, but over 28 countries to help everyday students from elementary all the way up to college, discover what they love doing, go out there and get real-world experiences, and incubate their own careers. And we've been fortunate over the years to run various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, uh, projects, and so much more to help over 35,000 students, 28 countries, and to date has, have even incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by students as young as 8 to 25 years old. And the essence of all of that has been stories, has been kind individuals who have been willing to share their time, their expertise, their journeys, so that we can learn from their experiences. And just like that, I hope that this show is that same platform for all of you so that all of you listening today can hopefully squeeze out the lessons that you need and figure out a little bit more about yourself and things that you want to do from this show. So if there's any topics that you want to talk about, if there's any uh, conversations that you want to have, let us know. And we'll try our best to bring them on the show and to curate the experiences that you need to excel in things that you want. And many of you have been expressing huge interest in uh, the world of education and especially in the world of education and entrepreneurship and how those two things intersect. So our theme for this month is on the world of education, fortunately enough, and we have someone who is probably the most exemplary individual on campus to represent these two uh, interesting and phenomenal yet different kind of worlds. We have with us a serial entrepreneur and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, who today as our guest speaker has not only gone out there um, and excelled phenomenally as an entrepreneur, but who has founded, funded, and at the same time, mentored and aided several education ventures over his 25-year career. He started his career as a strategy consultant at KPMG, where he actually performed market research for the commercial development of space, which in itself is crazy and and a huge different uh, world in in its own right. And he later was recruited to serve as a senior executive on two digital marketing agencies, uh, one of which went public in 1998. From there, he pursued his passion for public education, started his own EdTech incubator where he co founded PACE, the Partnership for Academic and Community Excellence, which has gone on to actually um, connect millions of parents in all 50 states across the US. They basically help, um, uh, they are basically a school to home communication network, and as I said, have helped thousands of K 12 students across the uh, the country to actually have the resources to get connected uh, from school and home. And they were sold to NTI Group um, and then to Blackboard for 182 million, which is, again, out of this world. And today, our speaker serves as an entrepreneur in residence and the director of innovation programs at Catalyst at at the Penn Graduate School of Education. Here, he mentors aspiring education entrepreneurs, supports the Milken Penn GSE Education Business Plan competition and is a huge contributor towards the educational entrepreneurship ecosystem that we all get to enjoy and that we all uh, get to learn from. So without further ado, I think we have waited long enough to meet the legend himself. So let's invite our speaker onto our virtual stage. Welcoming, John Gamba.
1: Hey, Arsha. Hey, Arsha. How you doing? Great introduction. I love the passion and I love the energy. It's great to be here.
0: Well, it's a bit scary. Like, like, I don't think there's a way to read your introduction that is boring. So I don't think that that's it's essentially an a, a apt praise because you have done so many phenomenal things. You have created, you have mentored, you have guided. So thank you so much for being on, on the show to actually share your experiences with the wider pen community.
1: Thank you for having me. It's interesting when you, uh, when you share that bio, I'm often reminded of the famous Michelangelo quote who said, if you only knew how hard I worked at my craft you wouldn't be so surprised at what I've created. I have a little bit of a different uh, bent on that quote. I like to say, if you only knew how many times I failed at entrepreneurship, you wouldn't be so surprised at my occasional success. Uh, And I think that's a key theme of, of my work as an entrepreneur is, you know, how do we uh, overcome adversity. How do we become? How, how do we ensure res- that we're resilient and perseverant? But it's just awesome to be working here in this in this job at the University of Pennsylvania. My roots, you know, where where you know I I started coming to campus at a young age. Uh, given my roots were my my both of my parents uh, attended University of Pennsylvania as well.
0: No, I think uh you were of course a graduate of Penn you you worked at Penn your parents were Penn alumni and I think your son also recently graduated from Wharton right so That's
1: right that's right yeah this past June it was a a really exciting time I had the honor of celebrating my own uh 30th reunion uh, but my father also celebrated his 60th reunion and at the same time of me celebrating my 30th and my dad celebrating my 60th Uh, My my son walked down Locust Walk as a graduate from uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. So it was a great time. The three Johns, you know, celebrating incredible milestones.
0: Okay that is number one insane because of course the, the name legacy itself is crazy but it's also crazy how you guys spaced it out at exactly like 30 years like like was this the grand plan like okay guys like like we we've, we've got to all like like finish our paper so that we can all celebrate the 30 year intervals but okay very cool i think we can start off like i think right off the bat and embarrass your son a little bit i think we have a photo of you delivering a lecture um and as well as having uh speaking a little bit about him as a as a graduate there on the projector if I see, right? Tell me about this in a sense. What well, what were you saying? What well, tell us the story that we promise we will not uh relate to (laughs) your
1: son afterwards. It was a great lecture. It was to uh, Leadership in the Business World, which is a Wharton summer program uh, that uh, teaches aspiring high school seniors from around the world um, on leadership skills, leadership principles, and the basics of what you'd learn uh, through a Wharton undergraduate education. I shared that day lessons learned on my entrepreneurial journey. Uh, and I shared a story, you know, your your theme of this show is the power of stories. And I, I was sharing how, you know, when when I was an up and coming entrepreneur, uh, starting a couple of companies back when J.J., my son, was born. Um, I can remember running the company out of my house and almost running out of money. You know, that's the biggest rule in entrepreneurship. Droom. don't run out of money. <laughs> and we were running out of money. It was one of those uh, th- those stories of of overcoming adversity and being perseverant. And I'll never forget, my son kind of looked up at me at that time and said, well, dad, I guess it's time for you to get a real job. And it's <laughs> funny, I, I shared that story uh, and and now, uh, of course, you know he's off to his own uh, his own races as a uh, as a graduate of the Wharton School, taking entrepreneurship courses, majoring in marketing, and now uh, working on uh, pursuing a, a career in the film industry. So I, I shared that story, and uh, a lot of the students got a kick out of it. That that smart-ass son who said get a real job is later, uh, you know, going going through the process of his own uh, you know career journey uh, at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Well, as you said, like the world of entrepreneurship is such that you you get 99% failure or 80% if you're lucky in a sense. So I'm sure you, you get the opportunity to, you know, come back and, and at least at one point point it back out and, and reverse that on your son, hopefully. That's non- for sure. Uh, but no, it's amazing. And you have done so many things specifically in education. It, like you brought entrepreneurship into the world of education in your career as well, which is absolutely brilliant. And I think when we last spoke, one of the things that you mentioned is that your family had a big influence on how you saw education growing up as well. And I think you mentioned your dad was a first-generation college student and the impact that that had on it. Growing up, what, what was kind of the, the talk around education in your household, in a sense? And how important was it to you?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So first of all, both of my parents were first generation high school Mm -hmm. graduates, not even college graduates. None of my grandparents graduated from high school. Uh, They were immigrants, uh, hard workers, blue collar workers. um, And they instilled in my parents the importance and power of education. In fact, uh, my grandfather, uh, Angelo Gamba, uh, was a bridge uh, painter. He actually painted bridges in, in Newark, New Jersey, and he would never allow my father to hold a paintbrush because he worried that he'd like it. Uh, he <laughs> said, no, you're going to go to school. You're going to go to college. And lucky enough, my father was offered a scholarship to go to the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he was a student athlete. Um, he graduated in four years, although he thought in the first week that he would never be able to graduate the University of Pennsylvania. I'm
0: sure, we'll um, say it, I'm sure everyone thinks that at Penn right now as well, but yeah.
1: As fate would have it, um, when he graduated, he met my mother, who was a student at Penn School of Nursing, um, where she graduated. Um, And then kind of the rest is history. Uh, You know, I was born in 1970, and some of my first memories was going to uh, Penn versus Princeton basketball games at the Palestra. Um, It instilled in us, my dad instilled in us, a hatred for orange and black. Uh, We still don't celebrate uh, Halloween in our family because of the colors. We hate Princeton. Uh, but I can never forget those incredible uh, nights going to uh, games at the Palestra and uh, just walking around ca- campus and just feeling this, this sense of pride and honor and, and always thinking maybe someday I'll be able to come here. And then sure enough, in 1988, I entered the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, My mom had graduated uh, after Penn School of Nursing as a graduate student in sociology in the mid 80s. So I was going to campus then when she was attending class right off of Locust Walk. Um, But more more importantly, I think, is this this instilling this sense of uh, purpose in the field of education. My father was a school board chairperson of a school district outside of Philadelphia. My mom was a uh, community college professor uh, in teaching statistics. My sister was a Montessori teacher, so education has always been in our DNA. Uh, we always wanted to, you know, do good and do well in the field of education as an education entrepreneur, in my case, and uh, you know that led to the forming, uh, led by my mom and dad, uh, of the Gamba Family Foundation, um, which came together in uh, 2007 with a mission and a, and a uh, vision of closing the achievement gap for inner city schools. So the four of us get to work together and invest our, our resources in causes uh, related to uh, the deeper learning movement. And, and again, closing that achievement and opportunity gap uh, for underserved communities uh, in the United States.
0: No, but it's actually like not only is that heartwarming to hear, but that's actually so brilliant that all four of you have taken a slightly different on like education path in a sense, uh, in terms of your careers, and then now you you kind of get to bring those experiences together and, and 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 do something to give back to the community as a family. That that's lovely in a sense, and we probably should get more families to do things like that. So just like hint hint, all families out there, learn, <laughs> learn listen, learn, yeah. Uh, Tell me a bit about like the time when you were like rewind the clock when you were a college student deciding what you wanted to do. I know you majored, if I'm not mistaken, in U.S. history. Did you know back then that okay, education, entrepreneurship, or entrepreneurship in general was something that you wanted to do? Or what was kind of like college teenager you thinking about when you thought of the rest of your life?
1: Uh, that's a great question as well. So I went to uh, graduated from a Jesuit high school, Georgetown Prep in Rockville, Maryland. And uh, I think the roots really were the Christian service project that I was involved with at a soup kitchen where I had to go for, I think, 10 weeks, Sunday mornings uh, to serve at a uh, at a local soup kitchen in Washington, D.C. Um, as we know, you know, the Jesuit tradition of men for others really instilled this, you know, a purpose driven life, giving back, giving um, being selfless, constant thought of others. Um, and so when I you know, went through my high school years, um, I had a, a, a teacher, Dr. Oakes, Stephen Oakes, who's still there teaching, um, who was my American history teacher. And I just loved American history. I loved his style of teaching. When I got to Penn, um, I looked at a lot of different majors um, and decided on a track of, of American history. My advisor uh, was Drew Gilpin Faust, who went on to become the president of Harvard University, um, and so I had a great experience as an American history major at at Penn. When I when I graduated from Penn, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I thought it was something related to law. You know, I was kind of on a pre-law track, and actually worked at a public defender's office in Washington D.C. when I graduated from Penn, and quickly discovered six months into that experience that I didn't want to be a lawyer um, and that uh, possibly business was for me. I then went into, as you shared on my bio, a, um, a role as a high tech consultant at KPMG Pete Marwick in Washington, D.C. Had a wonderful uh, partner uh, who uh, taught me the fundamentals of business strategy, marketing, sales, business development, operations, and then recruit got recruited out of there back when the internet was this kind of mysterious, this worldwide web was gonna you know, change the face of, of, of business and, uh, and, and joined a digital agency, which later went public in 1998, uh, US Interactive, first Magnet Interactive in Washington DC and then US Interactive in Los Angeles, California. But I always had this, this, this vision and this, this idea that, that uh, game-changing things could be created in the field of education through the use of technology and that's when I uh, I founded Incubate in 1998, which was a um, an ed tech incubator built through the vision of sort of Bill Gross's Idea Lab, where we would look at business plans, we would help raise funding, we would uh, you know kind of a, a venture studio model, bring in resources to develop out develop products. One of those products and platforms became Pace. The partnership for academic and community excellence which was a transformative platform that allowed administrators to record personalized voice messages and send those messages to parents in a moment's notice and then i was kind of off to the races in 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 building out that company from 1998 until its ultimate exit in 2008 to blackboard in an all-cash transaction
0: oh gosh that itself is is mind-boggling to think i think we we mentioned it was in the hundreds of millions, when you when you guys sold the company and when, when when it was acquired, in a sense, which is every entrepreneur's dream, really. You spend ten years building out something that not only has a lot of monetary value, but I think the work that you guys had a lot of. of act- value and impact among the students among the teachers among the parents in a sense in connecting the different people involved in the kids education together and we'll get to that in a moment but you skim through so many interesting things so fast that i'm gonna have to go back and and, and I'm just have to pick that apart first of all space like okay I'm like space is my trigger warning because like I, I love space too much and and i love essentially anything to do with with uh, i think the the whole outer space and the universe out there you worked uh, in one of your first uh, roles as as you mentioned in KPMG i think one of the consulting clients and projects you had was with nasa how do you even start learning about things like this isn't that literal like, like, you know, they say, I'm not a rocket scientist, right? That's quite literally a rocket scientist kind of forte. So as someone coming out of college, like figuring out, okay, first thing that I did, it wasn't really my cup of tea. How did you get sucked into something that was equally complicated and, and, and completely different in a way?
1: Yeah, this is a great story. Again, the power of storytelling. A- after my experience as a you know working in the public defender's office, I had a friend who just said, "Hey, we're looking for program analysts and consultants in the strategic, uh, the the strategy uh, division of KPMG. Come in and interview." I went in and interviewed. They said, "Hey, you know you you have you know you you went to Penn. I had a concentration in the Wharton School in management, so I had a little bit of a business background. Uh, I was hired, and the partner and manager said the first place we're going to put you in is, is in the, the commercial development of space division where you'll be doing market research and um, analyst reports on the commercial development of space. I was like, I'm in. And it's funny. Cause I had no interest in this at all. Fast no. forward. I had no interest in the commercial development of space, but I will tell you that fast forward, I don't know, 30 years, my wife is an ancient aliens space, fanatic so when i tell her these stories of how we were doing market uh research on uh crystallization in space uh you know low, low earth orbiting satellites from orbital sciences and and what that could mean um from from a um from a from a med medical science standpoint what that could mean from a remote sensing standpoint all of your maps all of your uh you know crop image, crop images, all of this was kind of the roots in the mid 90s when I had gotten involved in in this division at KPMG, where NASA was our largest client. So I I did a lot of market reports, I was published. um, And I I learned a lot about LEO and Geo satellite systems, low earth orbiting and geosynchronous or uh, uh, satellite systems, which is kind of the roots of what we see with Elon Musk and SpaceX and a lot of what's going on right now in the commercial development of space. Know nothing about it now, but that was the roots of my, uh, my, my my business experience.
0: It's terrible that you didn't like space. It's terrible, terrible, and, and oh my god, that this quite literally an out-of-this-world opportunity and an out-of-this-world career, pun intended. Um, how do you, like, again, in a sense, one of the things that is quite interesting in your story is you did so many different things even before you found, like, like your niche in, in education, entrepreneurship, and how you How do you train your mind to pivot and learn so quickly in each of these new roles? Again, public defender's office, and then space. And then and then you move into, uh, I think, even, like, digital media before you, you actually find that niche. How do you start learning and relearning? And when do you know when it's time to move on to the next thing?
1: Yeah, I think there is an innate... Uh, curiosity in in anything I I did as I was growing up I was just curious about sports I was curious about business My father was a was a, a business executive in a Fortune 500 company so I I kind of watched and ultimately he became my mentor I became curious as to what would uh, what does differentiation mean What does um, you know a value proposition mean how do you develop a mission vision and core values in a business Um, so there was an innate curiosity there when the internet and the world wide web kind of started developing in the early 90s into the mid 90s um, i just read anything and everything wired magazine snow crash by neil stevenson just a lot of different things that said the world you know what is a database and who is you know what 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 is oracle and what are they doing Um, a lot of great mentorship a lot of great um, uh, opportunities to work with people who are pioneers in this field. I mean, we were literally putting up some of the first branded websites on the Internet, Mercedes Benz, Kellogg's, Fox uh, uh, Entertainment. Um, And it was it was just a great experience to think about what um, the future of digital technology would hold, what would. Uh, we do when we went beyond just branded websites into e-business applications, multi-tiered applications, e-commerce. And that kind of became the basis of, wow, how can we transform education by applying certain digital technologies uh, to transform the way that education uh, does business? And that kind of was the roots and uh, came up with this Best practice B E S T, which was a framework for developing new business plans and business strategies in the world of, of uh, education and education technology, and the rest is history. I'm still using that methodology and that framework in the work that I do right now as entrepreneur in residence at Penn's GSE.
0: Crazy, and and I think like like your time at I think Magnet Interactive, if I got the name right, you 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 work yes on entertainment but also on edutainment. What is that in a sense? Where did you guys come up with this? And and what does it look like? What did it look like?
1: Yeah. So one of the projects that I worked on was um, the Vietnam Wall, stories behind the Vietnam Wall. And we had this vision that not only could CD-ROMs at the time or uh, digital uh, technology be uh, delivered through the lens of entertainment, but we could also use it for... Edutainment, so education and entertainment, to engage students through the power of stories. And um, we had a producer who uh, was a Vietnam War veteran um, who tracked fifteen stories of, of names that were on the Vietnam Wall. Who they were, what what was their background, um, what what did they do, what was their role in the Vietnam War, and how has their legacy since they passed um, moved on and. Those stories, those relics, what, what's been left at the Vietnam War Memorial was all chronicled through uh, this ed- edutainment title. So that was just one of, of many different edutainment uh, uh, titles that we developed, produced, and distributed through uh, Fox Home Entertainment in, in Los Angeles, California.
0: Tell me about your experiences then. How, does he, how do you come up with these, these ideas in a sense? Because entertainment in itself is tough. Education is tough. Out of this world difficult. How do you bring some, these two things together in a sense, which at a at a glance may look completely opposing? And I know now we've got a lot of educational content that is extremely entertaining, but this was again when when things were first starting out, like back when they were cd rom So how, how do you start kind of like pitching and putting together ideas um, that were both entertaining, engaging, and educational?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of the lean startup methodology. You know, the uh, Eric Ries has, has a book. Um, I'm really a big fan of a lean canvas, not necessarily a large, you know, 6,500 page business plan. But it starts with a problem and a solution and then wraps with all of the different components of what makes a good business. What is your target market? Uh, what is your value proposition? How do your strategies uh, turn into tactics um, and and deliverables and objectives and key results? But um, f- for me, with the best products, always started with a problem, always started with a solution, always started with a quantification of the market uh, and a value proposition. You know, a theory of action or a theory of change that was rooted in research. Uh, that could be uh, uh, converted into a prototype or an MVP, a minimally viable product that could scale over time and be uh, and and be developed into uh, a scalable solution that's solved a real-world problem.
0: Yep. And how do you bring this kind of in, in investment ethos, in a sense? to the work that you were doing and, and see that when you were evaluating startups, in a sense. Like you, as, as we spoke about, I think afterwards, you you started your own investment uh, firm, in a sense, where you, where you uh, which is where I think you discovered Pace, in a sense. When, when a company like that came to you, or maybe even that story in particular, what was your initial reaction? And how did you kind of merge that ethos with what you were seeing and what they were bringing to the table?
1: Back to the power of story, right? I talked high level just a moment ago about a problem and a solution, but let me bring it down to a story. So I was sitting in my office and a gentleman came in with a backpack memo uh, and the backpack memo had an apple juice stain on the backpack memo and he threw it down on, the, on my desk and he said, darn it, John, is this how we're communicating with parents in schools these days? Still a backpack memo? I was like, Bennett, what do you mean? What, what What's wrong? And sure enough, on the backpack memo from his kindergarten son, there was an apple juice stain on the date and time of back to school night. He had gone to back to school night the night before, and the custodian said, sorry, sir, back to school night was two nights ago. So he got the date and time wrong of back to school night and was so frustrated, he came into my office and he said, we're going to change the way. Uh, schools communicate with parents. We're going to create the first and only school-to-home communications network that allows this administrator, this principal, to record a message and send it out uh, to parents in a moment's notice. And then the rest is really history. I said, "You're crazy. There's that—that's already being done. There's polling applications for voting. There's direct marketing applications." He said, "No, no, no. We're going to do some market research. We're going to quantify the market, and we're going to discover." That this is not happening in schools now this is the late 90s and sure enough there was a market opportunity which we were able to quantify uh, which we were able to determine how much it would cost for a school to purchase a product like this slowly but surely we got one elementary school then one southern california school district we even had creative ways for it to be subsidized by corporate sponsors corporate sponsors were Uh, sponsoring the messages, Uh, you know, this message is brought to you by our partner in education, Neil Klimo of REMAX Premier Real Estate. So we got really creative with how uh, the, the, the programs could be subsidized. Then we moved beyond just outreach communications, you know, thinking that a more involved parent led to a higher achieving student. We started thinking about, well, Columbine happened a short time ago. How can we send or support emergency communications not only through the telephones, but also through email or through texts. And so we developed an an emergency communications capability. And sure enough on 9-11, all of our New York clients were using it uh, during the tragic events of 9-11. And then we woke up to attendance communications. So if you get uh, attendance communications at home saying uh, your son or daughter was marked absent today, please excuse the absence. We created that as well. So it was a full service integrated school to home communications platform that uh, informed parents, allowed administrators to send uh, messages during times of the unthinkable, uh, as well as student attendance communications. And I get a lot of stories. I get a lot of email. I get a, uh, the, the, the solution was used, Blackboard Connect was used during the tragic events of Parkland, uh, during Santa Fe, and most recently during during Uvalde. And, it, and while that event is tragic, um, many people are, are saying that it was the communications with parents that actually saved uh, a lot of lives. Unfortunately, we lost 21 lives during that event. But it's it just warms the heart when you get those stories that your product or service that was kind of invented on a napkin is now used uh, during life and death uh, uh, situations.
0: As I said, I think this is the real definition of impact, in a sense that that like you can't go more than than your work has been instrumental in saving lives, and I think that that shows how how brilliant of a solution it is, how how elegant it was in in terms of being simple enough to understand and and to be implemented at a wide scale scope. Many times people don't see the need for something until tragedy strikes in a way. So in those initial stages of of, of kind of raising the seed round, talking to schools, getting this implemented, what were the biggest kind of, I would say, roadblocks or obstacles that you saw that that you guys had to overcome in in bringing the solution out there?
1: I share a lot about this, um, some of the lessons learned, Um, you know, back when, you know, My son was saying, it's time to get a real job. (laughs) I had uh, sort of a few come to Jesus moments, right? One was, uh, one lesson was um, surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you. And I'll never forget um, as I was trying to develop this partnership for academic and community excellence and kind of winging it. You know, I, I wanted to be Steve Jobs, but I recognized I couldn't do this without having people who are a lot smarter than me join me and help me develop the value proposition. And, and it was important to recognize as I, I needed someone like a Tom Motter who knew how to sell into schools, knew how to position a product to be able to be embraced by a, a school system, I needed a Josh Roth, our, our CTO, um, who understood how to send uh, emergency communications through the POTS, the plain old telefo- telephone service. You know, to be able to get 50,000 calls out in under 15 minutes is like an art. I had no idea how to do that. So I had to surround myself with someone like josh who was super smart i had to bring in someone like Gigi goodling who was my general counsel who said hey you're selling into schools you need to be thinking about coppa and 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 uh you know different privacy and security ferpa i was like "COPPA and ferpa i had no idea what any of this meant but if i tried to do that alone the lesson learned there is bring in the smart people who can uh, uh understand and think of things through the lens of of legal affairs sales and marketing uh, technology so it was the weight of that that uh, thought leadership of my team that allowed me to excel and and take that 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 product service and solution to the next level very very important uh, lesson I couldn't do it alone uh, and and if I did I probably would have failed many more times than I actually did before I actually got it right
0: how I I know that every entrepreneur, in a sense, struggles with finding the right founding team and and finding the right people in it. For you, in a sense, how do you go about maybe bringing together or at least knowing who is the right person to bring it at what point in time? Because you've got different needs as you're growing a business. Not everything is important at the same time. So how do you go about deciding, Okay, I need this expertise. I'm going to focus on this aspect of the business and, and being able to do that successfully to bring something to to market, in a sense.
1: I coach uh, my mentees that it's about research. Really look at the benchmark companies that are in your space and look at who they brought in. Look at who their leadership is. What is their background? Um, and I, I'll say, Arsa, that it's hard. Um, in you know, we, we like to say that competing in the K-12 and even the pre-K to career education space is like, uh, you know, dealing with the glacial pace by which uh, they operate. It's very slow. Um, and there's an art to being able to do this. Um, so bringing in the right people uh, through the process of benchmarking competitors and bi- benchmarking uh, some of those who are doing it really well, uh, I think is critically important. It's also important to acknowledge that in this space, digital learning, education especially, um, there's a lot of cross functionality, right? It's not just, oh, I need a full stack engineer and any full stack engineer will do. It has to be a full stock engineer who understands things like interoperability. How does a product or service interoperate with a school's infrastructure? Instructional designing, you know, how do you develop uh, a product or service that will be embraced by a classroom teacher or an administrator and work within their uh, instructional episode environments. So really important to understand the art of instructional design, curriculum development, and how instructional developers, designers and curriculum developers work with software developers. So it's really important to understand the interdisciplinary elements of those working relationships, um, the cross-functionality that's required in between Uh, you know, those elements in terms of how a product or service is designed. It's really an art, takes a lot of research, takes a lot of benchmarking. um, And and that's kind of what we do through our Entrepreneur-in-Residence program. Benchmarking, research, thinking about how to develop a cross-functional team and how that team will scale over time uh, for sustainable competitive differentiation.
0: No. Very cool, very cool in a sense, and I think we can put up a little bit of uh, some photos of you speaking to students in a sense um, in your lectures, bringing out the ed- like all of these phenomenal tip- tips and tricks in a sense. Where was this lecture specifically? I think uh, on campus. Tell us the story behind this photo.
1: Yeah, this was also the LBW, the uh, the, the leadership in a business world. Uh, that's at Steinberg Dietrich uh, in in one of the Wharton buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was also talking about lessons learned. And I think that part of my lecture really got down to, um, measuring what matters, uh, really thinking about if you can't measure it, it's not worth doing it. Uh, we talked in that lecture about the power of OKRs. I'm a big Andy Grove fan and John Doerr fan. OKRs are objectives and key resor- results. Google uses them. Bono and YouTube, 2 uses them. Uh, so we talked a lot about, you know, how to, how to measure the impact of what you're doing and why that matters as you're raising money, as you're growing your business, um, as you have to develop, as you need to develop a culture of OKRs or KPIs, key performance indicators uh, within your business. And if you can create that kind of culture, you'll be on the path to success.
0: That's a That's a very good point in a sense. And I feel like, like from my conversations with people, especially in the education space and all of that, sometimes finding the right deliverables can be a little bit tricky. I mean, of course, like on one side, you can track attendance increase, you can track grades increase and all of that. But for many people in in kind of like the education space, sometimes it can like, or maybe like, I'd argue all entrepreneur spaces in a sense, it can be a little bit hard to decide on the metrics and really stick to it as you kind of, as you're seeing a project through in a sense in your experiences of the many different projects that you've run how do you how do you know what is the one or two things that matter for you to track because as an entrepreneur there's so much information so much data so much things that you can kind of look into and you don't know going in which is going to be the best metric to look at so how do you make that decision
1: it's a great question Um, in my field where i'm working with a lot of k-12 education um, ed tech products we start by looking at standards Right. We, and standards are basically expectations that could be common core that could be SEL standards like CASEL standards. So there are prescribed or ascribed standards that are out there that say um, unless you can align your product or service to those standards and demonstrate that your product or delivered delivers product or service delivers against those standards. Um, you don't have an efficacious uh, uh, product or service. So we we look at the standards that are out there and we think about data analytics, backend dashboards that could demonstrate through an evaluative model, how you're delivering on those standards through crosswalks, data analytics, and 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 graphical impacts. Um, so so we start with standards in in, in education. And we think about the, the analytics and the dashboards that need to be created to be able to demonstrate that, that you've been able to deliver and deliver that outcome.
0: Yeah, but it's also, it's kind of like, why are you measuring things that you think are important versus measuring things that are generally recognized as important and all of that? Okay, very, very good tip in a sense, a very good kind of a thought process in, in making building all these things. Since we're kind of segueing into kind of the, the, the nitty-gritty details of what makes things essentially succeed... I thought we can talk a little bit about this. This is a talk you gave, I think, um, on how innovations flourish. Tell me about this in a sense. Tell me about the experience of uh, or, or this whole program that you put together. Uh, I think it was last year, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah. So um, I'm, I, I'm part of a team of changemakers, a catalyst at Penn GSE. It's the innovation center within uh, Penn GSE, whose mission is to advance innovation, impact and equity in worldwide education. We do that through a continuum of programming, including boot camps, in that case, how innovations flourish, webinars, meetups, and our signature program, which is our Milken Penn GSE business plan competition, which is now in its 13th year. We've supported 1500 EdTech entrepreneurs. We've given away $1.5 million in prizes uh, and, and, and cash and prizes. And we've watched and supported those ventures go on to raise another $150 million in venture capital. So uh, we're, we're really big on impact um, and efficacy, but recently we've started to raise the bar on this idea of equity. And that talk was uh, global innovation and its impact on intentional equity and what that means. And what was fascinating about that roundtable or that webinar was how different countries think about equity. And when we think about equity, we're thinking about three core things. And when the the, the global uh, education uh, industry is thinking about, they could be different, but they do you know focus on three uh, core areas. One is um, uh, equitable access. How are people from all walks of life, from underserved communities getting access to great education? Two is equitable experiences. We don't talk enough about how education, especially in the United States, was really built through the lens of a white construct. Well, how are we culturally inclusive? How are we ensuring that when we're teaching and students are learning, we're doing that through the lens of cultural inclusivity. Uh, The way that a a white male learns could be different from a a woman student of color. Uh, And we have to be mindful of that. And we have to train teachers to be mindful of, of, of that. So equitable experience is important. And then equitable outcomes. We can't just say, let's teach to the test. Park and smarter, balanced, and that's it. We have to really think about what is success and and what does that mean, depending on the type of students that we're teaching. Um, you, you know, how are we developing critical thinking skills? How are we uh, ensuring that students are mental mentally healthy? Um, what are we doing to think about soft skills like empathy? Uh, you know, driving. You know, a service based learning model where people are thinking of others and being empathic. Um, and 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 you know developing this this world for others um without being so conscious on am i getting a 36 on my ACTs and getting into the best university? We're thinking about some of those other measures that would be pointing to toward an equitable world as well. So equitable access, equitable experiences, and equitable outcomes in education is something that we've raised the bar on and focused on at Penn's GSE through our programming uh, at Catalyst at Penn GSE.
0: This is something that I think is so phenomenal and I think that that more people should be talking about this because I think it's something that is, again, again, uh, uh, simple to think about but not easy to do in practice in a sense and it's not something often easily implemented even though we all can agree that, that that is logic in a sense and that makes a lot of sense when you think about it objectively. How do you go about driving these changes in in? Level of policy, or how, or at the level of uh, of kind of the school wide level, in a sense, beyond um, individual conversations, or where does it start? Where does this change start?
1: I come back to OKRs, objectives and key results. We can talk all day long about equity, but unless we're institutionalizing them in the programming and measuring the outcomes of how you're delivering on that vision, mission, and core value, uh, you're not doing it. I'll give you a perfect example. in our rubric for the Milken-Penn GSE business plan competition, our, uh, our measures of what made one of those were seven of those 250 applicants a finalist and four of them winners really was driven when I first got to, to Penn GSE around innovation. We had an innovation index two years ago, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of these s- systemic issues that we we're seeing, we said no. We're now going to uh, build a new rubric, publish it, let uh, the applicants know that we are measuring uh, your uh, value through our program, through our competition, based on your acknowledgement and achievement and delivery on this rubric that involves intentional equity. Are you a founder of color? Are you really focused on equitable outcomes, equitable experiences or equitable access and how? And actually saying, you know, we're not going to just say what is their uh, understanding of the market, or what is the innovation that they're delivering, and mark that equally with equity. We actually increased the the value of intentional equity and in how we were selecting our semifinalists, finalists, and ultimate winners. I think that's important, you know, and, and and so it starts with intention and ends with outcomes and ends with measuring the outcome, uh, and we've been able to do that pretty well. We still have a lot of work to do, obviously, but uh, you know we're, we're we're really intentional in how we're doing it at Penn GSE.
0: No, as I said, I think you've you you you've tied those two points really, really well together. And I think you're really sure that it's not just about, you know, putting it out there, but it's about putting it in the rubrics, putting it in the valuation criteria, really bringing that to the institution. You on one side are an amazing, like you have your educator hat, you have your entrepreneur hat. You also have another hat on, on on kind of the philanthropic side. You mentioned about your family foundation and the work that that you as a family do and kind of like for making sure that equal access and equal opportunities are provided to different groups of people. Tell me about where, how you see in your head at the very least, how these different parts come to being. Some people say, oh, entrepreneurship is all we need. Philanthropy can take a back seat. Others think hmm, philanthropy is all we need. Entrepreneurship and innovation can take a backseat in a sense. So you, you have all of these different components when you come in, come in and approach problems in education. Why is that important?
1: Yeah, it's it, i i think of it as the double bottom line doing good and doing well at the same time very much as an entrepreneur market driven uh, i'm i believe in 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 capitalism i have a lot of debates at Penn gse regarding whether education should be free whether education should be um, you know va- valued through an economic uh capitalistic lens um, i am a fan of public education public free education but i'm also a fan of Uh, innovation through the development of market-driven products and services. Uh, So there's a balance there. In terms of the philanthropic work, the Gamba Family Foundation was really born um, through this this vision of uh, serving the underrepresented communities in our country. As an aspiring entrepreneur, I walked through the halls of so many school districts where I said, wow, that's ripe for disruption. Um, all of us have a business lens in our family. My mom, my dad, my my sister, and I, uh, marketing, management, entrepreneurship, uh, and my mom, as, as you know, grew up in a, in a family of entrepreneurs as well. Um, so we're very much market driven. But also purpose-driven, and there are certain things that we really believe in, like the deeper learning movement. Not being so focused on teaching to the test, but developing critical thinking skills, creative problem-solving skills, um, uh, students working in teams, character development. Really big fans of Angela Duckworth and her work in the Character Labs, uh, you know, and 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 how we're developing, uh, you know, character and grit and developing a, a work ethic, we think is so critically important as we look out into the world and see some of these systemic inequities. What can we do to drive the power of self-awareness, self-esteem, self-direction, and incorporate some of that programming into the world of education? And that's where we're uh, excited about uh, allocating our funding. We, and we're not that big. you know. My, my sister is the executive director of the foundation. Um, we just gave away our millionth dollar, which we're very proud wow. of. Nice. Um, and we continue to, you know, run the foundation like a business where we're measuring um, all of our investments and in, and in, in tracking the impact over time.
0: Very well said. I, I love that you brought up Angela Duckworth. I'm a positive psychology major. So, so again, like, like, like. Full fan of that in a sense, and personally, because of the work I, I, I run in education, when when I was choosing what to do for college, I was thinking, do I go the business lens? Do I go the 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 character development lens in a sense? And I always thought, if I really want the work to flourish, part of it would also be looking at, at individual students and understanding the science of that a little bit more. So yeah, like 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 that you mentioned, Angela. So
1: you're knows. a fan of Marty Seligman. So that's a <laughs> a, a really big uh, a program here at Penn. Um, there's also a really uh, a growing um, program within Penn's GSE called the, the Center for Human and Optimal Development and Dr. Nakala's work in possibility science. So not only positivity, but also possibility science. What happens when a student, a young student, especially from underrepresented communities, has a sense of possibility that they think that whatever they want to do in life is possible, they can do it. So it's not only just positive positivity but also possibility. And then what happens when you look at that through the lens of both, somebody who is both positive and thinking that things are possible, then the, 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 you know, the, the, the real fun begins in terms of the research and what uh, those students are capable of over time. And then unfortunately, what's the impact of those who are not positive and don't feel like anything's possible? And that's when we see aberrant behavior. That's when we see uh, you know situations with law enforcement that's where we see despair, depression, and even uh, suicidal ideation, which is unfortunate. and what we're seeing a lot of in this mental health crisis that we face right now post pandemic.
0: Oh gosh, you've just doubled my reading list. this is terrible for me. Um, but you no know, really cool stuff. I'm checking that out. You guys should check it out too if you're if you're listening and you're equally as, as fascinated with with all of this as I am. so thank you for that. I am very sad that we have apparently reached. Wow, that
1: flew by, didn't it? We yeah, kept going for I, a while.
0: Like I, as I said, you you have too many experiences to talk about. It, it it's very it, it's very sad as, as a listener in a sense that we have to to bring this on this interview to a close. I normally do a wrap up, but I think we spoke about so many amazing things, and I'll just end with with in a sense this question that you are someone who who like you 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 have an amazing environment in a sense that that seems to have shaped certain aspects of the work that you do. You, you come again from family of both business and entrepreneurship, and at the same time of having the, the education aspect mixed into it. And, and you've, re, you've brought that to, I think, the next level in your own career. As someone who, a pen grad, parents of pen grads, kids of pen grads in a sense, what do you think is the most important thing in the environment of a kid growing up that enables them to achieve the things that they want to and enable them to change their reality in a sense. And again, you work with this from many points of view. So what is the environment that can help someone change their reality?
1: It's a great question. And, you know, wrapping it all up with with, you know, what I'm about to say, the research proves. So the possibility research, the positivity research. And I think it's um, demonstrating the paradox of humility and will. I say this a lot to the entrepreneurs that I mentor. You have to demonstrate the paradox of humility and will what does that mean humility is i'm willing to be coachable i'm willing to surround myself with people who are smarter than me i'm willing to learn more research more uh figure out how i can get through these up and down moments of being an entrepreneur so i have humility and coachability but i also have will i'm willing to run through walls to be successful those who have that paradox because sometimes that clashes I see a lot of people who are very willful and willing to be do whatever it takes to be successful, but not so coachable. I see a lot of coachability, but not real enough hard work and willing to run through walls. So that paradox, when I see that come together, those are the entrepreneurs I like to work with, and those are the entrepreneurs that I believe are going to be the most successful through that lens of being double bottom line uh, driven, doing good and doing well in this pur- purpose-driven world of, of education and education technology.
0: Okay. That was the best wrap-up I could have hoped. Well, and the evidence proves it in a sense. I, I, I'm i very excited now to, to go and check out all of this new information that I have digested. But thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a really, really fun conversation. I've learned so much, and I can only assume that our audience is... Uh, has learned as much as I did and had as much fun as I did listening to you and your experiences.
1: So, Thank, thank you, so you. Harsa. It was really an awesome interview. And uh, I hope to be back and whatever I can do to support your work on campus and beyond. I'd be happy to do it. Thank you very much.
0: Oh, we are too kind, and I really do appreciate that. To our audience, thank you as well for joining us on today's show. As always, if you enjoyed today's show, let us know. Give us a little like or or comment below so that we can continue bringing you these different interviews, these different perspectives. And as always, this is Changing Reality, brought to you every Thursday at ten PM ET. So come again next week, and we'll see you then.
1: Bye. Bye. You're listening to
0: Changing Reality. Changing reality, where we bend reality all across the world, only on WQHS Radio.